0: Welcome you to episode three hundred and thirty three of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, your one stop shop for all things comp- compliance related. I'm pleased to announce a new service offering from Advanced Compliance Solutions called the Compliance Alliance. The compliance Alliance is a three step program that will provide you and your sales team a background into compliance and the FCPA so that you can consider how your product or service fits into the needs of a compliance officer. It includes a boot camp around operationalizing your compliance program, sponsorship of a 30-day podcast series, and in-person training. Interested parties should contact Tom Fox at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have back with me Professor Samuel Buell, and he talks about His recent article he co-authored with Rachel Brewster on the market for global anti-corruption enforcement. It's a really interesting look at how the FCPA enforcement realm uh, developed, and particularly the cases, rather the uh, uh, areas that, uh, issues that arose from overseas that had to come into place to allow the explosion of FCPA enforcement in the middle of the last decade. Also, uh, he takes a very interesting look at the domestic uh, side of things, and then focuses on a part of uh, FCPA enforcement that is often controversial, which is the alleged revolving door. The episode comes in in around 20 minutes. I think you'll find it a fascinating interview. Dr. Buell is uh, one of the, uh, Professor Buell is one of the top law professors In this area, and he writes and thinks about white-collar law quite a bit. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today I am extraordinarily pleased to have back with me Professor Samuel Buell. He is the Bernard M. Fishman Professor at law, professor of law at Duke University, and he, along with his colleague Rachel Brewster, have recently published a new paper entitled The Market for Global Anti-Corruption Enforcement, which is available at the Duke Law School um, website, which I will link to in the show notes. So with that uh, somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, Professor Buell, welcome back, and uh, looking forward to a discussion of your article today. Hi, Tom. So um, could you tell us maybe uh, what uh, led you and Rachel to uh, put your heads together to – Put this article together.
1: Well, we've been uh, each uh, teaching in our different areas. You know, I teach white collar crime, corporate crime, uh, and ordinary criminal law at, at Duke, and Rachel teaches um, international uh, financial regulation and uh, global uh, gl- global commercial law, and. Uh, I've been long been interested in the FCPA, obviously, as is everyone who teaches in my areas. Rachel had become interested in the FCPA in the last couple of years, and so we began uh, talking about it. Rachel started teaching a seminar on it at Duke. She came to my course a couple times, and we sort of co-taught classes, and so I guess it was sort of inevitable that we would write something together at some point, but then um, a couple of members of our faculty organized a Year long um, series of workshops that culminated in a symposium issue of our wonderful journal Law and Contemporary Problems. And the theme of that uh, project was Law and Markets. And they asked us, you know, would you guys like to do something for this? And Rachel and I each were asked individually. And then Rachel and I talked and said, well, maybe this is where we should do the FCPA paper and we can center it around the idea of you know, that there's been this kind of market for enforcement globally that's developed over the last few decades, and and, and maybe there's been an absence of a kind of big-picture overarching piece to explain, you know, how it came to pass that in this enforcement market where, in theory, jurisdictions would compete, uh, the U.S. has dominated.
0: So the, the article has broken down generally into both uh, – Uh, First an international sphere and then a domestic component. In the international, what I was most interested in was y'all's, if I can use that good southern plural possessive of y'all's, y'all's discussion of the various strands of international thought, international leadership by the United States, and frankly international spade work by the United States to bring corruption to the forefront tied together with various economists who came to view corruption as uh, a, a very uh, negative impact on emerging economies. And that sort of up, leading up to about the year 2000 poised the domestic market to uh, have many avenues open and uh, bases For investigation and enforcement action. So I was wondering if you could walk us through the changes in the international scene, uh, sort of from the passage of the FCPA, maybe up to around 2000.
1: Yeah. So this is really, um, not surprisingly, Rachel's part of the paper. She's the international law expert. But you know, I learned a lot from her in writing this paper together. And it's just such an interesting story about how kind of law and norms interact interact on the international stage uh, in ways that can lead to real changes in doctrine and enforcement on the ground. So, of course, you know, it's well known by people who practice in the FCPA area that the FCPA, um, as you well know, Tom, was originally enacted to deal with uh, concerns really about domestic political corruption more than anything, and, and it's sort of... Um, tentacles abroad and, you know, came after Watergate. And um, it really wasn't a statute that was designed initially to engage other countries in a discussion about what the norms ought to be around bribery and corruption. And in fact, at that time in the seventies, there were not strong international norms against bribery and corruption. You know, the famous uh, fact that a lot of people uh, know the, is that at that time in Germany and some other European countries bribery could be deducted on a corporate tax return um, you know I think the attitude was cost of doing business in the developing world uh, you know on balance it's it's better to pay the bribes and get not to because you know everybody benefits from development and the international institutions um, like the OECD and the World Bank might have had something contrary to say about that We're to some extent bought into the, that thinking you know that just sort of what, what the intellectual landscape was and those institutions uh, can be those kinds of international institutions can be very shaped in what they do by what the dominant in- wasn't a lot of worry about corruption. you know something shifted. Uh, Post FCPA enactment, you know, in the 80s and moving into the 90s, um, and maybe it has to do with globalization. Maybe it has to do with uh, you know the internationalization of commerce, technology, a level of of visibility and transparency around the world about what was going on, and there was this you know appreciation that developed within the international institutions, and also spurred on by a change in attitude among academics that corruption was a real drag on development. Um, aside from all the human rights and other issues that are associated with... Uh, separate and apart from anything that the U.S. was really um, doing. I mean, the U.S. was, was involved in those institutions and was, uh, uh, you know, was anti-corruption in the positions that it took, but it really required an international shift before the uh, US was really in a position to develop what has become the modern FCPA practice because these are international cases. And even if you have a law, it's very hard to enforce that law abroad without some buy-in from other countries or you're gonna find massive obstacles to being able to collect evidence and bring cases.
0: So one of the points that really intrigued me was sort of on a parallel track, but really separate and apart from U.S. efforts, were, was the World Bank and World Bank policymakers. And they came to this uh, sort of uh, change in economic thinking, but it was more than just academicians thinking, and, or policymakers rather, thinking that there were a group of economists who left the World Bank to form Transparency International. A well known uh, NGO focusing on increasing government transparency as a means of decreasing production. So, you had these various disparate strands all moving forward uh, together with the U.S. really leading efforts, as you said, uh, to try to overcome the lack of foreign support for a domestic law. So, they were able to create this um, foreign support through the OECD, which uh, you guys point out uh, may not have been the obvious choice to utilize. Uh, as a mechanism. Nevertheless, the OECD became an essential part of opening the door to, to greater enforcement uh, of the FCPA. But it still that leaves open the domestic side of things. And so I was wondering if you could turn to your section entitled A Domestic Industry Grows and explain sort of the top down and then bottom up and most particularly the control rule and how the uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual really fits into this in a way that many of us may not have understood.
1: Yeah, so um, I think, again, sort of by happenstance, not because, uh, you know, this shift in international attitudes was necessarily anticipated or foreseen, but uh, institutionally in the FCPA, the DOJ, uh, at some point after its enactment, built in these kind of procedural uh, dimensions to it that don't exist with regard to other... Of federal criminal statutes, or only with respect to a few of them, um, and that was the, you know, the the, the mandate of, um, main justice approval for FCPA prosecutions. And the original uh, worry that gave rise to that was, uh, well, gee, these are going to have um, foreign policy implications. And so uh, we need sort of the political leadership at the department to be looped in when prosecutors are doing these cases, because there might be reasons they need to consult with the State Department or worry about collateral effects that a prosecution could have on other U.S. interests outside the criminal law. Um, I don't think that that was a uh, position that was uh, developed because They anticipated a huge volume of FCPA prosecutions. I think they just looked at the statute and saw this as a particular kind of um, foreign policy related criminal law. And so they put those procedures in and then they needed a place in the DOJ for that review process to take place. And it was assigned to the fraud section, which is um, not just a supervisory part of the bureaucracy, but an actual enforcement office in Maine justice that has lawyers that bring cases. So you had a place for FCPA cases to land so that when the doors opened internationally, um, there was a cadre of prosecutors who were available to, uh, do those cases out of main justice and, and almost would have jumped on an opportunity to have a set of cases that they could focus on that would justify their existence in the way that, you know, bureaucrats do. So, uh, the path opens internationally. There are uh, structures in place domestically uh, for these cases to be brought. And then, you know, as often happens with these federal criminal statutes, you would, you know, another example would be healthcare fraud enforcement. If you went back 20 years, I uh, have to bring cases. Suddenly, there is uh, sort of discovered on the books the statute that, hey, um these cases look like they're actually pretty straightforward There, so let's start doing them.
0: So from the um, structural part of the international side, moving forward to the domestic side, could you now speak to sort of what you call the bottom-up approach?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, you have these um, institutions in place in in DOJ. You have the pathways open internationally. And then you have the question of sort of how do federal prosecutors decide what they want to do? when uh, they have limited resources, but also uh, they have, um, you know, completely open jurisdiction to uh, choose what they want to spend their time on. Um, they have a discretionary docket. So what is it about FCPA cases that uh, becomes attractive? Uh, and, and again, I think, you know, we you often have these stories in federal criminal law where one or two or a few prosecutors or one office kind of discovers a, a largely dormant statute and sees uh, the ability to make a bunch of cases because they're, you know, essentially reading about what's going on out there in markets and there's a problem and there's a statute that fits and, um, you know, U.S. policy uh, is behind it. And. Uh, I also think that, you know, bribery, which is the core of the FCPA violation, is something that any prosecutor who's been trained in any kind of criminal enforcement is probably going to immediately recognize as kind of a clear-cut form of wrongdoing. You know, I know what this is, I know it's wrong, um, and I know how to prove it. It's not maybe as murky as something else might be, like accounting fraud or insider trading. Um, there aren't as many gray areas. It's just a question of which cases we want to do and how hard is it going to be for us to get the evidence to prove them. And, you know, as markets are globalizing and U S corporations are operating more and more fluidly abroad, there are just going to be more of these situations popping up. The prosecutor's going to see and say, Hey, well, why don't we do a case about that? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice black and white story. It has a – the case I'm looking at is clearly wrongdoing, and it's got a policy justification behind it, which is, you know, if we can do something, even a little bit about this corruption and bribery problem, maybe we're helping people in the world. Um, And maybe we're even helping level the playing field a little bit for U.S. corporations, so it could be kind of a win-win. And I think federal prosecutors, because they have this discretionary docket and they can only do so many cases, they like to think the ones that they – do pursue are having a public policy impact.
0: So that that's really a, a great last point, but um, if I can change the focus just a little bit, which is um, I really now saw in your article a, kind of a market response, which was that uh, prosecutors uh, developed a uh, tool at some point in the late 1990s or early 2000s of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, and that's probably not even right. I'm sure it was around long before that, but they started utilizing it. And then uh, law firms uh, began to hire or utilize ex-prosecutors to do more rigorous and robust uh, external investigations for corporations and negotiate penalties with uh, the prosecutors. So it seemed to me to be sort of a... um, driven by the factors you've um, articulated, but then the market responded to the direction the government went. Did uh, Is that something close to what you guys were trying to say?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, when we put together explanatory stories like this as academics, um, we often use the word overdetermined and the explosion of the FCPA practice is overdetermined. These, these various causes intersect in a way that uh, collectively make it much more likely to have ended up where we are than if there had been only one or even two of them, right? So this this other cause that you've just identified is kind of, um, you know, once there's a pump of, of cases into the government, uh, that pump has to sort of stay primed. For the prosecutors to continue to do these cases and there to continue to be hiring around the fraud section offices and policy initiatives in this area and so on. And perhaps somewhat ironically, the defense bar becomes the primary source for priming that pump. And, And so here what we have is the FCPA story interacting with the larger story that I think we're all familiar with now about the development of corporate crime prosecution in general since the Clinton administration and the Holder memo, the Thompson memo, the Philip memo, the Yates memo, and so on, the government's very self-conscious effort to set out a kind of enforcement program for corporate crime that trades off corporate criminal liability against cooperation. And uh, for companies to engage with that enforcement program in any meaningful way, they've got to have You know these big law firm operations that can do the investigation and then do the negotiating with the government. And if the law or the settlement market is set up in such a way that the major thing that you get credit for is self-reporting, then there's going to start to be cases actually just being brought to the government by corporations, not even the prosecutors going out to uh, look at them. And then it becomes kind of a You know, as I said, a pump that just keeps flowing. And it's very interesting to see that even the new administration um, sessions and others have made comments in the last month to suggest that the government may continue to just do these cases um, and the market will continue to flow.
0: Uh, next, if I could turn to what I found, uh, what I have to believe was, was uh, really personal writing from, your, from you, but uh, in the context of the article, you directly took on the concept of the revolving door, and what I found most interesting about it was an articulation to show that it, uh, um, it's really a false construct. Uh, I have argued that the protections in place for lawyers who leave the Department of Justice in terms of length of time before they can negotiate with their former colleagues is enough, but you go at it a completely different way and explain why it is really a false construct. So I was wondering if you just might be able to touch on on that because I found it, quite frankly, so powerful.
1: Well, I think I, first of all, felt like I had to address it in this account that we've been going through because... Once you get to the point where you talk about the defense bar's involvement in, um, in, in sort of contributing to the flow of cases into the government and how that explains, in part, the explosion in FCPA practice, uh, I think some people will naturally react to that by thinking, "Oh, well, that doesn't look good. That's that's just, you know, um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, so this whole thing of FCPA enforcement is just a full employment act for." prosecutors and defense lawyers they are kind of giving each other cases. And then if it turns out that the prosecutors go to work at the big firms, which is very much true, uh, then it looks like, you know, this isn't really a public regarding exercise. It's an exercise that's designed to create a market for legal services. And, um, I just don't think it really works that way because, um, the kind of people who go into federal prosecution service, are all people who've either already got or could easily get well-paying jobs at big law firms? Um, yes, the government service adds to your resume and maybe it helps you make partner down the road. But maybe in some firms, safer to make partner by staying. So, but in any event, I mean the kind of people who do this job do it because they want the autonomy, the the, the public interest motivations, the opportunity to maybe make an impact and so i don't think it's the case that they go into the government they start doing these kinds of cases and then the first thing that's on their mind is well what does the defense bar want me to do uh you know because i want to get hired by them later um but it's understandable to me that people would uh you know possibly perceive it that way because The fact that most of these cases settle and then the negotiations occur between prosecutors and and defense lawyers who are former prosecutors makes it seem a little clubby. Um, But I think what's really going on in that club is that those lawyers are working out together a shared set of norms, uh, almost a common law, if you like, for how these cases ought to be settled. What, What should the sanctions be What kind of monitoring and reform provisions ought to be put in these settlements? What should companies be required to do? And they're trying, as anybody does in the settlement context there, to strike a balance between a penalty that's going to have a deterrent effect, but the ability of the corporation to continue to do business and and hopefully to do business in a more law-abiding manner. So um, I think what's going on there more than sort of a let's create work for lawyers is a uh, let's figure out a way to be good policy lawyers, lawyers who have an impact um, on markets in a way that's productive um, and promotes compliance with law, but doesn't create um, unnecessary harm. Now, it's quite fair, I think, and appropriate, as many academics have been doing, to criticize whether those lawyers are actually getting to the right result. But what I'm really talking about is um, I think better understanding kind of what they're up to and what their motives are.
0: So I'm visiting today and have been visiting with Professor Samuel Buell, uh, Professor of Law at uh, Professor Duke uh, Law School on his article that he co-wrote with Rachel Brewster, The Market for Global Anti-Corruption Enforcement. I would certainly commend it to anyone who is interested in how the FCPA developed, particularly how uh, anti-corruption enforcement developed. And as always, a a great read, fascinating story. And uh, Professor, I look forward to your next uh, piece, whatever that might be. All right. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the top-rated podcast in compliance and compliance-related issues. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.